When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Dr. Shanyin Wu about her article in the conversation entitled Looking Back at America's Summer of Heat, Floods, and Climate Change, Welcome to the New Abnormal. Welcome to the show, Dr. Wu. Thank you for having me here. I am so glad that you're here and that we get to talk about climate change. Before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Uh, I am a professor working in the Department of Geology and uh, Environmental Geosciences at University of Dayton. And it's located in the city of Dayton in southwest Ohio. And I am uh, trained, my PhD is in environmental geography. I got my PhD from uh, University of Cambridge. And uh, I've been working in climate research since, um, since I, well, since my PhD and uh, for over 20 years. I like to ask guests what led them to their field of research. So back when you were in high school and you were looking forward, did you know that you were interested in science? What what led you to take the path that you did? Um, I've always liked science. And at the time, I I did not know about the climate change, but I... I was a tomboy. I like go out and get into the nature. So I'm, I was very curious about the, the natural world and how it's working. So that's how it got to me gradually into the field of climate science. And what led you to choose um, the schools that you did for your higher education? Uh, well, University of Cambridge is a very prestigious school. And, uh, and they had an excellent environment program housed in their geography department. So initially, I, wasn't, um, I was not sure about what to study. But um, after, um, after my undergraduate, and well, first of all, I, I went to university in China. And uh, after I... Uh, after I did my first master, I went to work for the um, National Environmental Protection Agency in China. And I worked there for a couple of years and it, I was really, I got really interested in various environmental issues. So that's when I started to look for programs that could get further education. That's where, uh, that's what led me to Cambridge. As academics, we often find ourselves living in other countries or traveling far and wide. Um, was that something that you found exciting? It can be daunting as well. Yes, it's both, but uh, more exciting. And obviously, there are a lot of changes and there are 
constant culture shocks. I mean, even today, there's culture differences. I've lived in the United States for uh, over 20 years. And, um, but still, yeah, but it's, it's, I found it very exciting. So I did my, um, I did my PhD, a master and a PhD at Cambridge uh, in late 90s. I came to United States in the in, in the year 2000. I first did my postdoc at uh, University of Pennsylvania and uh, for three years, and bef- and then I uh, I worked one year in the University of well in the Gettysburg College before I came to Dayton 2004. So I moved around quite a bit, and uh, but it's just like not only moving for, to different countries, and United States is such a big country, even moving from place to place, and each place will come with their own different local, regional cultures, and um, I just found that fascinating. You mentioned that when you were younger, you thought of yourself as a tomboy, and you really liked to be outside and in nature. How have the different places that you lived allowed you to find time in nature, or did you have to specifically use your research to get away and get out in nature again? Oh, um, the places I've been to, they usually have um, a lot of outdoor um, outdoor amenities, and uh, so... Cambridge is a beautiful place. So over there, I uh, I was in a college rowing team. We row on the river cam, and we had a lot of outdoor activities, and it was beautiful. And uh, Penn State, like it's in, in State College, it's in the middle of nowhere, uh, but I loved it. And in the go, like just exploring the Appalachians and the um, the the mountains, and here in Ohio. Do you know this little trivia? Dayton area has the longest, uh, I think the longest paved hiking trails, like paved trails in the whole United States. We have like hundreds, thousand miles, uh, a couple of thousand miles of this paved trails where you can hike and you can bike. And so it's a really lovely place to live. It sounds like that helps you support your work-life balance. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And another thing I love about Dayton, it has a lot of rivers. And Dayton is sitting in the confluence of three major rivers that are coming together. And, uh, and of course, it used to cause severe flooding problems. And, um, but, um, but it's just it's beautiful with all the rivers. Have you kept up with your rowing? Um, not here. No, I wish I, I wish I would. I think they have a rowing team here. I need to find out more. I think kids get in the way. So let's talk about what inspired you to write this article in The Conversation. The Conversation is a publication that I'm new to learning about, and it, it, is articles written by academics for a more public audience. Is that right? Yes. And is how did you get connected with them and what inspired you to write this particular article? Um, I got connected to conversation uh, through our media office in the University of Dayton. And um, I wrote a couple of articles for them in the past. And I've 
I've come to really like this platform a lot. And you know, academics, we all just publish scientific publish in scientific journals, but very often and they don't get to the general public. And with climate change as such a overarching issue that that basically affect almost all aspects of our lives. And I, I just found it, I think it's, I found it gets more and more important. I've, I feel more and more the urgency to get some of the messages out to, to, to the general public. And particularly over the decades, climate change is becoming an increasingly political issue, which it shouldn't be. It's, it puzzled me and it's, it still puzzles me how um, people can let their uh, political views wash over all the, the mountains of evidence and, and data that we have. And so I think it's, it's important to get some of the messages out and it's important for scientists to communicate with non-scientists, with the general public, with the citizens of the country. And so that when we make collective decisions, such as in voting and for our representatives, voting for our president, voting for different policies, when we make those collective um, decisions, that people can have some scientific background or scientific knowledge at their hand. They make so that they make informed decisions. And this is a wonderful platform for scholars to directly communicate with the public yes, without an intermediator. Uh, sometimes when we write a scholarly article, then a reporter reads it and then they interpret it for the general public. And this is a direct one-to-one. The scholar can communicate directly to the public. Yes, yes. I really appreciate this platform a lot. Do you find that the information, there's less lost in that translation when it doesn't go through a reporter who then presents it perhaps over a news uh, outlet on television or cable, that because the scientists are able to communicate directly to the public, more information is conveyed more accurately? Absolutely. Yes. And I think in the past, I also got interviewed by local news whenever there is like a big storm or um, big like weather events, disasters in the past. And first of all, the, the news platforms usually very short and they will come and then ask me questions. I'll start to explain. And then it's, it, it's, it happened to me in the past. And then they would just like pick a couple of sentences and uh, yeah, it can be frustrating. It's yeah. So I I found um, conversation is um it's a much better platform, and the editors are wonderful, and they work with they work with me, and then they they help clarify things. But um, I feel that I can still uh, deal with the issue and include some of the in depth um, in depth information in the article. It's not just like sound bites. It can be frustrating for scholars to give time to an interview and then 
find out the small snippets that are that are used later instead of the 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 whole uh, body of information that was conveyed and in that then the nuances get lost yes yes so this article uh is called looking back at america's summer of heat floods and climate change welcome to the new abnormal my takeaway from the article is you don't want us to feel welcome in the new abnormal you are very concerned about the new abnormal i'm very concerned yes and some of the things you do in it uh is talk about some of the terms that have been used with the general public and talk about how they're misleading. Um, so do you want to just jump in and say how talking about this as a new normal is misleading? Yes. Very often people will say, oh, we're having more and more of those extreme events and uh, this is going to be the new normal. And new no- normal um, indicates a stable states. That means we're going to have the new normal means we're going to have the same amount of extreme events and they're going to stay at the same intensity. So it might be a little bit more intense from the past, but it's not going to get worse. That's how I understand if we say a new normal, it's a new stable state. But we're not not at a stable state. And the, the greenhouse gas emission is still like increasing year by year. So the greenhouse effect is, in, is, be, is getting more and more. So global warming is going to, what well, global uh, temperature is still rising, the, te- the, the climate is still warming. We are not at a stable state. So what that means is, yes, we're having more extremes, but they're going to get even worse in the future. So that's why I, I think the term new normal is misleading. It's just good. It's, if we're not doing anything about it, it's going to keep getting worse. You talked to us in the article about extreme events. And one example you give is a hundred year flood. And a hundred year flood means there's a 1% chance in in a century that it's going to happen. And yet that's not the case anymore. You let us know that extreme events, that term means by its definition that it's something that's going to occur rarely. But what we are seeing now with climate change is that they are increasing both in frequency and intensity. Can you talk to us about that? Yes. Um, first of all, um, conceptually, the extreme events is the how we define extreme that means if we line up all the events from like let's just take precipitation for example if we we line up all our precipitation days from small to big and then we say we say okay so the top 10 is extreme that means if we have like a hundred a hundred events the top 10 events of that magnitude should on average occurs like 10% of the time. And but what we are seeing is we are seeing those those events a lot more frequent. In that way, it's an, a clear indication that the climate itself is changing. It's not we're constantly being hit by bad luck, right? It's just like if you're if you are uh, throw a dice, and if you keep throwing the dice and you keep getting six, 
it would be very hard for you to believe that is still a fair dice, that the dice is not loaded. So right now, we are, what we're seeing is a climate that is loaded towards more extreme. And so this is, this is what the observation is. And it, it, has a, it has reasons, right? And global warming, like climate change, is going to lead to more of those extremes because there is a clear physical mechanism behind this. This is not something just pure statistics. And uh, so those, those mechanisms that behind him, we can actually reproduce them in models. And so climate models basically quantify all the climate states and their interactions. And if, so basically climate model becomes a one, our one big numeric lab, climate lab. So we can tweak different uh, parameters and then to see what will happen afterwards. So if the climate, if, if um, temperature increases, if climate warms, we are going to see all more of those extreme climate events. And so climate models as consistently reproduce this even decades ago. When I first started um, um, doing climate science uh, here in the United States, so the year 2000, I was involved in the national, the first national assessment of uh, impact of climate change. And the final report was uh, submitted to a Congress and it was mandated by the Climate Research Act. And um, so that was over 20 years ago. And even then, the climate model is saying, we're going to see how much increase in precipitation, in extreme precipitation, in flooding. And many of these, many of these um, predictions are coming, are coming true. We are seeing what the climate model predicted in the past. And sometimes a lot, well, very often we're actually seeing more of more um, more impacts than predicted by climate models. So, so this is this is something that we have clear we have observed, and also we have a, a fairly clear understanding of the physical mechanism behind it. And uh, would you like me to go into some of these signs behind why we have more extremes? I would. And I'd also like you to talk about those early models. You're, you're saying you've had them at least 20 years. And what the hope was by giving people that information, um, if it's been available for so long, were you hoping to prevent some of the outcomes that we're having now? Or did you know with those predictions that that was what was going to happen, that the changes were not going to happen to prevent the extremes that we're seeing? Um, most of the models are around to see what will happen. And um, given the present conditions, and obviously we can, 
um, we can mo- modify those conditions, right? So that's why when we run climate models into the future, let's say by the end of this century, we actually run it with several different conditions. So there are conditions that are, um, we have like very low, um, low emission, we call them scenarios. So the low emission scenarios and uh, that we have assumptions of that we're going to um, putting a lot of sustainable development practices. We're going to uh, we're going to severely limit the emission of greenhouse gases, and we are going to have a more efficient distribution of the world's um, products. And there's a there's a various assumptions behind all these scenarios. So. These scenarios, so based on that, we have low scenario, we have medium scenario, we have high scenario, we have very high scenario. The, the very high scenario is, is basically just uh, business as usual. Like, we are do, what are we doing now without we're doing nothing to uh, modify or to reduce our greenhouse emissions? And then we come up with different futures. And then we can, we can see we can see the prediction for the choices we are making. So this is how climate climate models work. Scientists are people. And are you disappointed that you had these models and you saw different scenarios and we could have chosen a different one? Were you resigned to what human nature is and how slow change happens, how does it feel as someone who can see a future that's avoidable and know that we're marching towards it anyway? To be honest, when I first started doing those models, I did it more or less like an academic exercise. It's just a problem to solve, a paper to write, And, um, but so at the time I'm hope I'm, I think at the time I was, I wasn't thinking much about policies and what is needed to be done. I guess at the time I did not see the urgency and, uh, but looking at those models, um, I don't know. I did not. I, I guess I wasn't very engaged, like politically, and uh, like outside the science. But as a th- as as many of these predictions like unfolding in front of my eyes, and particularly things like hurricanes, extreme extreme precipitations, like extreme storms, and uh, so I, I like. Um, I saw the, um, the, the horrendous rainfall with uh, Hurricane like, um, Harvey and, the, um, and then the one that went all the way up to New York. And, these are, and then you get those record strength of hurricanes. I started to get really worried. And um, I sometimes like lose sleep and I just like, Oh my goodness! This thing is happening, and it's happening fast. I think when I first started doing research, I 
I have a disconnect. I always felt that the model results is for the future. Like I always felt that yes, it looks bad, but it was in the future because we usually run like by the end of the by the end of the the century, and.、Uh, But as I start to see these things happening in front of my eyes, and it's just like climate change is not future anymore. It is now. It is. It is happening right, right in front of us. And、um, and I think the urgency was like I feel more and more of this urgency, and then. Of course, it get really dispirited to see how this. I feel that this should be a non-political, non-partisan issue. It's 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 a common survival issue, and then yeah, I do get very dispirited. I remember, <clears throat> I remember during the pandemic, my kid showed me a TikTok. I mean, that's TikTok is everywhere,、right? and my kids showed me a TikTok with、um, with doctors getting so frustrated that people would not take vaccines, and、uh, so they were like screaming in the shower. And then the next thing they says, "Now I get how climate scientists feel," <laughs> and I just like I feel yeah, yeah, and just like how can. How can this issue become so political that people are blind to facts and evidence? And I, 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 I'm very, very worried. The models you said can feel like data, and you're creating a model, and you can separate yourself out from it a bit. Now that it's happening, and we see. Photographic images and video footage, and people interviewed talking about going through profound loss. And、um, I am someone who's been through、um, uh, extreme wildfire and a debris flow.、Um, I know that caring people got desensitized. How do we get information to people? In a way that conveys urgency, without the human survival mechanism of numbing out, making them tune out. Yeah, that's that is a question. I don't know the answer. People do tune out, and I think, I think first of all, people are not very good with slow change. Anyway, I mean, even at the rate of change of this, like the current climate change, the the rate of change is unprecedented in in the in whatever the 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 paleo climate、um, information we can get is unprecedented in at least millions or hundreds of millions of years. The rate of change. I'm not talking about how warm it is, but how fast it is warming up. It's it's never um, never uh, it's never seen before in the historical、uh, geological records. But still, relatively to our lifetime, it's 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 still 
not something. The change is not like something that it's relatively slow. So people are not very good at perceiving slow changes and make them a priority issue. And plus, even with those dramatic disasters, and people get desensitized. And、um, yeah, those images—if it keeps coming—I mean, just the pan- pandemic. How many people died in the pandemic? It's it's horrendous. But when we look at look back, and people are not worried about it anymore. And so, yeah, it's true. People deset they yeah they get desensitized. I guess that's like a human survival mechanism. People don't want to get don't want to be worried all the time. But the thing is. You got to do something about it. It's it's not like it's not something that you don't worry it will go away. As an academic, I like facts. I find them very comforting.、Um, I'm、too. always surprised when people don't want to be buried under the facts when there's a problem. I feel like, can I? How many resources can I give you? And how far back? I'm a historian, so how many examples in the past would you like? And um. So, would you like to bury us in facts about how we got to where you are? You said a few minutes ago, "Would I like to hear about the multiple factors and and what what leads to these types of changes?" And, and I genuinely would, and I'm trusting that our listeners would too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, so, my my area is、um, I I look at hydrological cycles, so I look at、um, precipitation more than temperatures, and precipitation is also more difficult to to predict because it's、uh, it has spatially it is the distribution is very uneven, and the mechanism to form rainfall there's general patterns. But also, there are also、um, interplay with a lot of the local conditions like topography, like land cover, and、uh, and all of these, and so so that makes it more challenging. But there are some general patterns that that we can that that is well founded in in physics in science. So what are they? First of all.、Um, A warmer world is a wetter world, and that means so. Our our Earth, seventy percent of the surface is covered by ocean, so we have a lot of water. And where does the rain come from? The rain come from the evaporation of the water from the ocean, gets transported by the wind on land, and then there's evaporation on land as well, and then get put down. And and then when the condition is right, the the water vapor will condense to form liquid water and fall. That's that's precipitation. So when the air is warmer, it can hold more water vapor. So just give you an analogy, like if you have a hot hot cup of tea, you can put a lot of you can dissolve a lot of sugar in it. But if you have iced tea, you can't. And similarly, warm air can hold a lot of water vapor before it saturates, right? 
And so this is this is a well-known scientific fact. And the the amount the 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 holding capacity of the atmosphere increases about seven percent per degree increase of temperature. So that means, in general, when we have a warmer temperature, then there'll be more uh, more moisture. When I when I say moisture, that means water vapor. There's more moisture in the air. So. When more moisture in the air, whenever whatever condition, um, whatever condition is right to form rainfall, then there will be more rainfall. So a warmer a, a warmer um, a warmer climate means a wetter climate in general. And but the second thing is. The increase in precipitation is not the same for all precipitation. It's not like evenly increase and a little bit. And so we, we first talk about the intensity. So when you have a warmer, ha- a warmer air, that also means that the condensation level would be higher. That means it takes more water vapor to... F- uh, to saturate the air and then condense out. So that means you're not going to have a whole lot of the lighter rain, the smaller rain is going to decrease because we're going to need more water vapor to reach the um, saturation to form rainfall. So we're going to see a decrease in the uh, lighter rain, but when we, when the heavier rain that means the conditions that push all the moisture together, then the heavier rain will be even will get more intense because we have more moisture in the air. So the so the second pattern we're going to see is with the climate change, we're going to see less lighter precipitation, but more heavy precipitation. So the whole precipitation is going to shift towards heavier end. And then the third one, well, related to that one, is that we're going to see more increase uh, for extreme rainfalls, for extreme precipitation. Why is that? It's because extreme rainfall usually, so when we talk about rain, right? So it's not, it's not like um, when you get warmer, then there's evaporation, then that gets more moisture, the more water vapor in the air. It's not distributed evenly. So when you have a very heavy extreme rainfall, that's usually caused by conditions where the winds are, the winds are bringing all the airs coming together. That means it will collect moisture from other places and form the rain. So that's from extreme rainfall. That means you're going to collect a lot more moisture from other places as well. So because of that, we're going to see a pattern of more um, increase in the, um, in the heavy rainfall, in the extreme rainfall. So just give you some numbers. So over the past century, the average rainfall Globally, the average rainfall increased 
at about 2 to 3 percent, but the extreme heavy rainfall increased to about 10, 10 to 15 percent. So that's, the, that's a big difference in there. And so that's the second one. So with a warmer world, you're going to see more increase in extreme rainfall. And then spatially, the third one is spatially, you're going to see wet places getting wetter and dry places getting drier. So we're not going to see the increase of rain everywhere, right? Why is that? So if you look at the temperature, right? Temperature has a pretty kind of like gradual change. So we know we have, we are um, warm near the equator and cold at the poles, right? Because of the uneven heating of the Earth's surface. And, but rain, on the other hand, it also has a global pattern, but it is not like temperature, this gradual change. And that is because the the rainfall pattern is caused by the global circulation pattern. That means global wind pattern. So the wind is caused by the temperature difference between the pole and the equator. And then we have this big uh, circulation cells that got broken up because of the Earth rotation. So... In this sense, on Earth, we're having this very distinct belt of wet and dry. So in near the equator, these are the places where the winds are coming together. We call them convergence zones. And those are the places where wind gets pushed together, rises, and, and form rainfall. And then that's near the equator. So that's where we found most of the world rainforest. And then somewhere mid-latitudes, around about 30 degrees, both north and northern and southern hemisphere. And that's where the wind, like cold wind descent sinks. And then near the surface, the winds are actually pushing, they're, they're, moving, um, they're moving apart. And those are what we call divergent zones. And those are the places where the winds are moving, uh, moving apart and moving apart with them, they are also bringing the moisture away. So those are the places where we found our deserts. So our desert zone, desert zone is not located in the warmest place, right? A lot of, a lot of times people think deserts in the hot places. No, they're in the mid-latitudes where the wind diverges, the wind moving apart. And the, when the wind moving apart, they bring the, the moisture away. So that's the basics of the global precipitation pattern. We have our rainforest zones, and we have our desert zones, and then we have slightly wetter uh, subpolar zones. And then near the polar regions, very, very dry. Actually, they are the driest place on Earth. So what happens when uh, when the global climate warms, so we're going to increase the moisture, increase the water vapor in the air, but the water vapor does not stay there, right? That means 
in the wet places where the wind come together, they're going to bring more moisture. And then those places are going to get even wetter. Whereas dry places, because of higher temperature, then it increases the local evaporation. So they're going to cause the land to get even drier. But then those evaporation, those, the, um, the water vapor um, does not stay in the air. Instead, they get carried away by the divergent wind. And then that makes the dry places even drier. This is something we also see in the United States. So in the United States, we have a very distinct dry west, apart from the west coast, dry west and um, wet east, right? And over the year, um, the historical data as well as uh, the future um, for each of uh, the model results, the west is getting drier and the east is getting wetter. And the ironical thing is, despite the fact that the wet is getting drier, the extreme rainfall, that means when conditions are right to form those big thunderstorm, extreme storms, extreme rainfall has increased all over US. Even though we have this, the average precipitation decrease in the West, extreme precipitation still um, increased for the West. So that is a general pattern for precipitation under a warmer world. It's much more complicated. First of all, in general, it's getting, it's going to get get wetter, and that means like the global average is going to have more precipitation, and. Uh, in, but the precipitation second, the precipitation is get, going to get more intense. You're going to see a decrease in light precipitation. You're going to see more increase for the heavy uh, precipitation. And the third one is that you're going to see dry places getting drier and the, the wet places getting wetter. So all of these create a more violent world, not just like a little bit warmer everywhere, but a more violent world where we have more extreme storms at the same time have more extreme droughts. So the fire that I mentioned that I went through earlier, uh, we had had years of extreme drought. It was profound. And then we had a, a debris flow and mudslide because we had a very intense rain event while the fire was still going on. Um, the fire lasted longer than most news agencies had patience for. Um, and I somehow became people's um, scientist. They kept wanting me to explain to them why when the rain came, it didn't make things better and why it caused a second disaster. Yeah. And my best understanding as a layperson was that after there's been extreme drought for so many years, the ground can't absorb it the way people imagine that it will. There was this feeling among other people that, oh, well, the ground will just absorb it and store it and the trees will get better and things will just come back to life. I heard that phrase a lot. Everything will come back to life. Um, 
But there was a second thing in addition to the what the drought conditions had already done to the ground, which was what the extreme fire temperature did to the ground. And my best understanding as a layperson is it creates almost a concrete mm-hmm. um, layer to the to the ground to where it can't absorb. Do you want to talk a bit about why there's a compounding of the extreme events because the ground can't absorb uh, an extreme uh, rain pattern? Yeah. Um, well, soil properties is not my um, expertise, and uh, but I do um, um, know a little bit about this compound effects. So in terms of like, so for example, in the West, um, there are a couple of compound effects. First of all, warming increase evaporation and make the soil drier. So when the soil is dry, then, then it's easier to heat up. It's just like when you have water, we all know that water has very high specific um, heat. That means it takes a lot of energy to heat up water. But land, like ocean, takes a lot to heat up. But land heat up much faster. So, so when you have... When you initially have warming, you dry up the soil, and when the soil is dry, then you create, then you make it to heat up even more because it's easier to heat up. And then you create this positive loop to generate conditions of extreme heat. And then with the condition of extreme heat, then you can, also with the soil, uh, soil drying out, you have droughts, and droughts will lead to fire, and also it will lead to the die-off of vegetation. And so when you have fire, and uh, then, as you said, it baked the ground and to form like almost concrete. Concrete is like, it's more, almost it's the same like when you bake, bake mud, it will form like pottery, right? then it is impervious to water. And so you create those, those ground conditions that make it very hard to absorb water. And also vegetation, when vegetation died out, that also make it very hard for ground to absorb, absorb water. And a couple of reasons. First of all, vegetation, so in order for ground to absorb water, it is much easier to absorb when the rainfall is, when you have light rain. When you have very heavy rain, it hit on the soil and it causes erosion and then it just wash things off. When you have vegetation, then the rain fall on vegetation first before they hit, they hit the ground, right? And that will create buffering so that the ground is not directly hit by rain and causing erosion and causing runoff. So the first of all, the vegetation, let's just say trees, right? The leaves will absorb some water and then the remaining water, when they hit the ground, the kinetic energy is already being absorbed partly by the, by the leaf. So they hit the ground more gently and then make it more easier to, um, to absorb. 
And also when you have vegetation, then the vegetation will hold the soil together, make it easier for the water to go through. Excuse me. (coughs) But also um, make make it less easy for the soil to, to erode. So when you have the condition that the soil is extremely dry, it's been baked by fire, the vegetation already died off, so the root system is decayed, and then you have very heavy precipitation go on top of that. First of all, most of the most of the rain will start will form uh, will become rain uh, runoff and flow flow into the river. You're going to have flooding, flash flooding. And, uh, and also without the vegetation root holding the, holding the soil together and then the heavy rain without being buffered by vegetation like leaves and uh, the, the, the very high kinetic energy hitting the ground and all of these create conditions for mud flows, then to landslides. And uh, so all of these, can, um, it can be initiated by warming, but all these um, different aspects, they all come together to create these disasters. (coughs) Excuse me. One of the things that you mentioned in the article that I think is important is that the term global warming can be really misleading to people. We have been talking about um, warming air. We have been talking about the extreme weather patterns, but you prefer climate change over global warming as a term. Is that correct? Yes. And can you explain how the term global warming has confused and misled people? I often found like people think global warming means that, um, and particularly when we talk about global warming, and scientists often just say, oh, over the past uh, past 150 years, the global temperature has increased by one degree Celsius or 1.6 degree Fahrenheit. We talk in those terms. And people very often think, oh, one degree is nothing. A couple of degrees of warming is nothing because they perceive it as gent, like they often think about like one degree and add it on average everywhere, spread out, and it's a little bit, tiny little bit of warming and uniformly applied. But that's not how climate works. When we talk about one degree increase, we are talking about, we are talking, we're talking about global average. That means a lot of places which are, warm a lot more versus places that have a a slight cooling. And we average everything. We average all the extremes together. And that masked out the fact that a warmer world is a more violent world. A little bit, one degree warming is a lot, is a lot. Just give you a comparison. Have you heard the term little ice age? I don't think so. Little Ice Age, and uh, Little Ice Age is a period of time of um, kind of like global cooling 
um, around um, 16, between 1600 to about 1800, um, 1800 and um, a couple of years. And so those are the times when you see in a lot of the European, a lot of the European uh, paintings and like the canals in the Netherlands, they, they all froze in the winter and the River Thames froze in the winter. And it was a very different climate. That's why we call the Little Ice Age. And then also there is a period of time, we call it a medieval uh, warm period. And that's like 900 and to about 1200. Those are the time when Vikings were very active. They actually settled in uh, Greenland, right? Those two periods, very different, very different uh, climate state, but the average temperature of those two uh, periods, the average temperature difference is only about half degree. That's what one degree, well, that's just give you some perspective. One degree of warming is a lot. But also a warmer world means more extremes more extreme storms, more extreme heat waves, more extreme droughts. It's not like a pleasant one degree warming everywhere. So that's why I think global warming is a, it's a little bit, um, it's a, it's can be misleading because in other places, it's probably not warming. We'll probably have like heavier monsoon rains and more droughts and, uh, it will manifest in many different ways in different parts of the world. That's why I prefer climate change instead of global warming. I know we're running short on time and before we have to sign off, I wondered if you wanted to take an opportunity to talk about some of the solutions you'd like to see people coming together to implement. There is no easy way out. The, the, everything that leads out today is because, because our dependence on fossil fuel. And, but I also think there's a great opportunity. We need to transition our own, the whole energy structure into uh, renewable energy sources. And I personally, I don't think it's a zero-sum game. I think there are win-win situations. If we can put our effort, put our ingenuity, put our um, creativity to the right direction, right? If the, the government can provide, in, uh, can provide incentives to facilitate this energy uh, transformation, the transformation of the whole energy structure. Besides, fossil fuels is not renewable. We're going to run out of it anyway. And so this transition is inevitable. But the sooner we start, then the easier the transition will be. Then there's less, uh, less harm we're going to, um, the less harm is going to be done to the, to the ecosystem, to, to the planet as a whole. I'm not even talking about harm to the so-called environment. The environment is not something that outside of us. 
it's a harm to our any harm to the environment is a harm to ourselves. So the energy transition we are it's gonna happen no matter what, and whether we start it now, so it's just a basic choice of starting now, so we can have an easier transition,、uh, a milder climate change, or. We transition at the time we have to transition with a very very different、um, climate down the road. So, I think we do have a we do have a solution here. It's just whether people are willing to to pursue that route. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Sorry, excuse me. I did not hear clearly. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners?、Um, I really hope that、um, they can take、um, climate change more seriously, and I can. I hope that they can feel the urgency, as I do, that something needs to be done, and. That can translate into actions. I think the most immediate action is we can make collective decisions. We do live in a functioning democracy, and、uh, so we can use that to make a collective decisions and let our government know, our let our lawmakers know that this is what we believe that that. That we need to do something now, and the urgency is here. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Shangye Wu, and telling us about climate change and why we should not accept the new abnormal. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is the Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.